0: Hi everybody. This is John Branningham, and the, this is the uh, Inland Valley Arts and Literature Show. And today we're we're just kind of taking a break from our long philosophical discussions. We're going to recommend books that people should read. And um, I, I don't know. They, these can be high art books. Uh, mine are not going to be. My, or they can be, you know, uh, deep intellectual things. They can be just whatever. The, the, these are books we we think that people should read and will enjoy. Um, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm John Branningham. I'm, I'm primarily a fiction writer. I also write poetry.
1: Uh, I'm Tim Hatch. I, uh, I, I, what do I primarily write? I guess primarily I'm writing poetry and memoir.
2: Uh, I'm Aruni. I'm primarily writing poetry and my, one of the collections I'm working on will be memoir and po- poetry. So hmm. combining forms.
3: Nice. I am Ken Johnson. I write um, some fiction and poetry and uh, memoir.
4: And my name is Jeffrey Gressley, and I do a lot of technical narratives and grocery
0: lists. <laughs> nice. And Ken, Ken, you've written some pretty intense nonfiction too. This yeah. You still I'm,
3: a, I'm an intense kind of guy but then as a therapist I knew I had to grow out of that so I, I'm trying to set it aside although I wake up at night sometimes still screaming
0: Oh well, Great, I don't know if you saw my post it today, it was uh, my 3am dog, uh, that, yeah. that's the way I wake up in the middle of the night Yeah, so. I saw
3: that, that was pretty scary <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, what, at-
3: what happens at 3am?
0: 3 a.m., uh, my dog, Lizzie, usually sits next to my bed and just kind of starts staring at me. And so I wake up from a profound sense of being watched. And then I look over and there's Lizzie kind of just dead-eyeing me. And she just wants me to move so she can sleep on my head.
3: Yeah, but oh. it might not be Lizzie watching you. It might be someone else or something else.
1: What if Lizzie is actually someone else's familiar?
0: Uh, well, that, that they're getting a very gross peep show. Yeah, because that's just like... <laughs> which
1: uh, anyone listening in will
0: not be able to appreciate.
1: But anyway, um, that <laughs> but would be- uh, My yeah.
0: God, that's a lot of hair.
1: <laughs> or just, you know, someone sleeping, which really isn't very entertaining.
0: Yeah, yeah I remember- I was good. Well, well, they went all the way
4: uh, to the point of being able to have a familiar, and now the only creative thing you could think to do with it is have them watch John sleep. That's just, that's real low stakes.
0: That, that's just a, a, a creeper magician
1: yeah you know what we should do we should have a podcast where we just workshop the shitty off the cuff ideas that we come up with
4: well are you trying to tell me that like uh (laughs) magic tricks are no more like how am i supposed to uh make new friends in bars if i can't do magic tricks
0: i I don't think you should be going to bars i would use your words Um, i'm not i don't like anything i just heard Okay, so today what we're doing is we're just gonna recommend books. Anybody want to go first? Uh, I also
1: think we should workshop Shakespeare plays. It's a whole different podcast. <laughs> just like, look, the thing—did <laughs> we need his father's ghost to be the inciting incident? I mean, couldn't he just be angry as a young man? Anyway, um, so uh, I'll go first. Yeah. I feel obligated to uh, make up for the nonsense I just spewed out. Um, um, so uh, uh, the book I'm going to recommend is a weird book. And it's actually really, uh, it might even be like really offensive um, to some people. Uh, uh, in that it, it, it uh, deals with uh, cannibalism and it, even some more, uh, it doesn't dwell on it. It's not... Uh, it's, it's not, what, what is the word? Ex, I don't know, exploitative or purposely graphic, but uh, uh, it deals with like, like disturbing sex and uh, uh, cannibalism. Uh, anyway, the book is called uh, The Witness um, and it is written by uh, Juan Jose Saer, uh, S-A-E-R, if I am pronouncing that correctly. And if I'm not, I apologize. I have no idea when it was written. I read it for the first time in my 30s, because I had a uh, critical thinking teacher at Glendale Community College who made me read it. And uh, thank God for for that teacher. It was just one of those weird trippy books that just permanently tweaks your brain in all the right ways that a book should, in my opinion. And the basic story is uh, this is set, uh, it's been so long since I've read it, I don't even know exactly, but it was set in the olden days when sailing was a thing that might claim your life. Um, and uh, this guy winds up being uh, uh, taken prisoner and eventually just winds up living with this tribe of indigenous people who uh, kill and eat his crewmates. And uh, it turns out that every year they just have this crazy ritual where they uh, find people to kill and eat, and then they engage in this like day-long ritual of uh, eating the flesh of other people and uh, you know, this orgy uh, where uh, there are no boundaries for people to cross. Um, So, I mean, some of the description in the book is like, you know, family members are engaging with uh, other family members in this orgy and there just are no, everyone basically just goes batshit crazy once a year it lasts for a couple days and it's this giant horrible cannibalistic orgy and um when it ends they all kind of calm down as as the day in the days leading up to it they all start to get a little restless and then uh in the days going away from it they kind of come back to earth a little bit and everything's fine and they're just like a really great little uh society of people who look after each other and take care of each other and they have the division of labor and all of this and uh the guy realizes after decades of living with them that uh, they are not at all uh, primitive savage people um and that uh, his initial european perspective of them was just wrong and i don't want to get get into the details of why because that really uh that that would be basically giving you the whole book and you should read it. It's just, it's a weird trippy book. And if you can, I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but I'm positive you can find it used anew new on Amazon for like a buck. Cause no one's ever heard of it. And, uh, it's great. It's also one of those strange books where you're like, well, I'm just going to keep reading until I get to the end of the first chapter. And then the tricks on you, because it's, there are no chapters. Ah. It just is a 200, whatever page story, 300, whatever page story. Um, What do you like about it? Um, I like that it is so bizarre. I like that it can, honestly, one of the things I love about it is that it got published ever because what I've just described would turn off most people like, what? You want me to publish what and put my name on it? No, like it's, it's a really unsettling story concept. I like that it, uh, Shows behavior that, uh, from a you know, colonialist perspective, is considered savage. Um, and then shows you how there is a perspective to take on this behavior that is not that. Um, they consider themselves caretakers of the world in a way, and that's as much as I want to say without uh, going into spoilers and too much detail, but. Um, it's, uh, and, and it's also like a David Lynch movie on crack, like, huh. which I, I, I love that. I love anything that is just bizarre and weird, and it's not bizarre and weird for its own sake. It's bizarre and weird, and it has this really impactful uh, point, um, uh, which again, it's sort of got an anti-colonialist leaning, I think. Um,
0: yeah, which is what David Lynch is when he's, when he's,
1: when he's great. Uh, when he has, like, he has a point to his weirdness. Yeah, yeah, as, when, as when opposed, he doesn't have a point. As opposed a... to a racer head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is, <laughs> I love that movie, but it's it's also, I've seen it once and will only ever see it once as opposed to Mulholland Falls uh, or Mulholland Drive, I think, which I've seen three or four times, which has, that's, a, there's something, there's a story there if you care to delve into it and puzzle it out. Anyway.
0: And he's, he's using the, 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 lack of a better word the weirdness um as a way of getting to deeper things deeper discussions Mm -hmm. for sure for sure
1: yeah i mean he does a the the twin peaks movie is absolutely an allegory for child abuse um and it's also trippy and weird and, and you know all that stuff but it's you can't miss the allegory for child abuse it's it's a very powerful movie. If you look, if you don't know anything about Twin Peaks, I think it's it might even be a better movie if you don't know anything about Twin Peaks. Oh, that's interesting because
0: you're not sitting around waiting for, you know...
1: Yeah, you're seeing... not waiting for fucking Killer Bob to show up or David Bowie's character or any of that stuff. You're just, okay, what's this all about? Yeah. In fact, Agent Cooper would almost seem like an unnecessary inter- interruption to the story about Laura Palmer. Oh, that's interesting. In that movie. But anyway, we don't need to talk about... Twinkies. Well, he's the vehicle we know, though. Yeah, but that's the thing. If you don't know the show at all, then you're right. just like, who's this guy?
0: Yeah. Um. Okay, so what, what about some other books? About, how about a Rooney? What, what What's your pick?
2: Um, my pick is a book called Euphoria, written by Lily King. It came out in 2014. Um, And the reason I read this book is because a good friend of mine loved it so much. She gave me her copy and Mm -hmm. didn't tell me anything about it, what it was about. And um, it's one of the most hypnotic reads I've read in a long time. It's a fictional book that's based more or less on Margaret Mead's time in Papua New Guinea and the three fictional characters are based on real people, on Margaret Mead, her husband, and the person who would become a subsequent husband, three anthropologists. Um, but it's a re- it's a great narrative, first of all. Um, the language is really beautiful and lyrical, but it really turns a microscope on the field of anthropology and how inherently flawed it is, how inherently imperialist it is. Um, kind of similar to Tim's pick in that you you look at you know this quote savage culture and the way they conducted themselves and their their justice within um, their culture seems much more humane and fair and civilized than um, than the Eurocentric uh, anthropologist looking in mm. um, and what really impressed me about this book is it has a very um almost malarial quality like the language the way the description unfolds really gives you a sense of place like you can really feel like you're in the jungle of some uncharted society and you're really able to get inside the the minds of the characters there's certain there's a um, part of it that's written kind of as an epistolary novel that fills in the the blanks with these people studying these tribes um, along a river in New Guinea. And I just thought it was a really interesting story. It's it's a love triangle on top of everything else. And it gets into, you know, self-destruction and the jealousy between men and women and um, people yearning to live outside of um, Western conventions of love and and fidelity, super interesting book. So if you're at all interested in Margaret Mead but don't wanna read an academic tract about her work, this is a great option. Um, That's critical in a whole different way. It's critical of anthropology and of, of all of Margaret Mead's work, totally fictionalized. So you can sort of separate yourself from the work and just think about these characters and how they're functioning outside of their normal society. Super, I can't recommend this book highly enough. I loved it. And it was one of those things that literally fell in my lap and I thought, well, I trust this friend and I know she and I have similar taste in literature. So if she loved it, I will probably love it too.
0: Mm. So um, that's interesting.
2: there's some really interesting um, articles about like uh, book reviews that date back six years from New York times in different places. If you want to read more about, um, about euphoria. But I, th- I thought the title was great too, because there is this weird sense of euphoria you feel as you're reading. Um, and there's a lot of like very seductive sexual content, but it's not seedy. It's, it's very taken out of, like it takes you out of your normal social mores. Oh.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, and, and this idea of forbidden behavior um, and, you know, alliances between this love triangle, like intellectual alliance, romantic alliance, super um, provocative. It was for me um, very provocative ideas about, you know, there's romantic fidelity, but then there's also intellectual and professional fidelity and, and uh, how, you, how uh, anthropologists anyway, make things fair as far as discoveries, as far as their studies go and how theories are built up and torn down and, and uh, reconfigured. So it was a really interesting um, intellectual challenge to try to follow their reasoning as to how, how they evaluate societies and ultimately evaluate their own behavior and that's uh, and become disillusioned with uh, with the way they've led their lives thus far, and
0: yeah, I mean that that's always the thing with anthropology is uh, when when does when does it stop being science and start being this sort of imperialistic land grab and culture the thing to dominate culture and that 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 yeah. sort of thing.
2: There's a lot of questions about cultural appropriation and. You know, how do you take, you know, how do anthropologists take artifacts that are, that have great significance to a culture and then deconstruct them and put them behind glass in a museum and then impose other opinions about, you know, the meaning. And um, yeah. is there any real genuine interaction between someone studying a culture and the members of that culture? Like, is there always going to be some sort of guarded Interaction. I think necessarily there is because how do you build that kind of trust? And then once an anthropologist builds trust with a, a culture he or she is studying, can they ever be objective? I don't think there's any objective um, view of one person against another through this yeah. cultural lens. And, uh, and this book really explores that really well.
0: That's interesting. You know, I, I took a, uh, a a group of students and study abroad to London, and the the there the, was teaching critical thinking. And the question for the class was, should they return the El- Elgin Marbles, right? Those those, the, and they, they all started off with, of course not. And by the time they were done studying it, they they were all the answer was, of course they should. Why why haven't they done it yet, uh, kind of thing. So, uh, but you know, they, they, what they're doing basically was critiquing anthropology and archaeology and and the sorts of things that you're talking about. So that, that sounds like a fascinating book.
2: I really loved it. Um, you are welcome to read my copy of it. I've read it three or four times, and uh, oh. it, just, it really got under my skin. It really, it was like I would read for an hour or two, and then I'd just have to stop and let it let it percolate and and mm. evaluate how do I feel about all of this. I always thought anthropology was a, a really interesting field of study, but now I'm so much more skeptical of it. And I don't feel like it's a science, but I don't really know what it is and and what kind of value it has, especially the way the world's gotten so much smaller and there's so much more conflict between nations. I just think is anthropology even a valid way of evaluating
3: it? I think it's. You'd, it's really, you'd, you'd really love the Pit River Museum in Oxford. Um, for that very reason. It's this amazing place, which has stuff jammed in it from various expeditions that Oxfordians had, had embarked on. And um, you walk into it and you just, you, you just you, nobody has to say anything. It's very obvious that they went through the world and just hoovered everything that might be of either value or interest and the most you know the Brits have very odd interests and and they just they just seize on these little things as being endlessly fascinating which you look at as as being prosaic or mundane or something and they are all a flutter over these things and the the it's like an open air not an open air it's an open space um what's the word for a room that's atrium oh. it, it's like this enormous atrium that that's that's two two very extended stories high and it has skeletons of whales suspended by wire each piece by wire from the ceiling and they'll, they'll have a a pod of three or four different kinds of them swimming along through the air. They're, um, they've got stuff which obviously is of great, not just sentimental, but sacred value for the peoples that they stole it from. Um, they're just put behind glass cases and, and done so proudly. And it's, it's, boy, you don't need to read a lot of critical literature to have your skin crawl when you're there. It's it's a weird place, but it would be worth a field trip. You probably could write a book out of that place.
2: Well, now when I go to museums, I just, all I can think of is who was this stolen from and what's the original context that this right. artifact is supposed to be in. And then the, the argument you know, is always made by the conquering force that. Oh well, if we hadn't taken it, it would have just been destroyed in a war. It would have been this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always find that justification so fascinating because
3: mm-hmm.
2: those justifications are always authored by the pillager,
3: and exactly. not the, <laughs> the person who would have launched the war to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. So that
1: justification reeks of the white man's burden sensibility. And oh yeah, the war that would have destroyed the artifact likely would have been brought to the area by who?
2: <laughs> exactly. So, but it, yeah. I always find it interesting to go to museums of um, articles that are gifted to the culture. Like that, in China, I I believe it's been so long since I went um, in the Forbidden City Palace. There's a room of items that foreign dignitaries had um, gifted the emperor. And it's interesting to see what other people think a culture would value. And then when you get the explanation of like, oh, the emperor really didn't like this for this cultural reason, it makes you think like, wow, did you you do any research at all before you (laughs) gave this gift or, you know, or it's interesting to see what people like their gifts show you what they value, not what you value.
0: Yeah. that's right. interesting. Well, it's the story they're trying to tell themselves, isn't it?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so it's. I find the whole idea of you know, in two cultures interacting in supposedly civilized ways, endlessly fascinating because you know what what you would think is a great gift, someone would be horrified to receive potentially. Um, so it's, 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 uh,
0: that makes me think of uh, the, the Brits asked us for a statue of one of our presidents to put up in uh, near parliament and they thought we were going to give them Lincoln because it was around the time of Lincoln but we sent them George Washington uh, which to us <laughs> seems like a very natural thing but to them it's like this is the guy who kicked your ass you yeah, know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they've got Washington there right, right next to parliament
2: Exactly.
0: That really does seem like a dick move on our part. But
2: but that's a very standard uh, American power play. Yeah.
0: My oversight. Minor. Okay. And the train just adds a little
1: ambiance. No (laughs) worries.
2: Anyway, if you want to start a book club and read um, Euphoria, I would be super excited.
0: Oh, that'd be cool. Uh, maybe maybe, maybe I'll have CIG do that at some point, I, I don't know. Um, Ken, uh, what's your book pick?
3: My book pick is, this is my most favorite book. It's Oscar Ijuelos, and it's Mr. Ives Christmas. And Mr. Ives Christmas probably has all manner of cultural critique lodged against it, but I find it just wonderful none of the ideas presented in the book appeal to me in the least, but the way this guy writes, he just, it's enchanting. And he, he presents oh. a story of a, um, Puerto Rican in New York city. Who's a, a uh, commercial artist who's, who went to the, uh, I think it was the, the art center, there, got good training, ended up in advertising industry, industry makes money. But during his life, he's, he's always felt displaced. And so he would like to go to, to church uh, because it was the church of his youth. And he would go to the Catholic church and smell the incense. And he would listen to the Latin and that he didn't understand in the least. And he listened to the music, and he just, it made him feel at home. And midway through his life, his older son is killed murdered in a, in a mindless, random act of, of street violence in New York City. And this presents an enormous religious challenge to him. He's, he's, wow. He goes into a, a huge crisis over... Um, the foundation, you know, what kind of God would allow that to happen. And um, he works his way through it. And as people drop away, as he gets older and people are dropping out of his life, he finds himself going back, especially during Christmas Eve. And it's, a, um, it's this really wonderful poetic um, statement that is so gripping in the the language takes you to into his experience and does it in a way that, that you can smell the incense burning. You can hear the the choir and all, all its its fault moves and right moves and and uh the, you can hear the soprano who's aging and and losing her ability to reach higher notes and, and do it cleanly. And uh, you, you admire the, the warmth and sensitivity of, of the minister and the congregation that, that keeps her there because they know it's important to her. Um, he has these set of, of visions um, every now and then, which kind of bring him back to his core faith. Um, I'm no Christian and I'm certainly not Catholic, but I could see the the draw through huh. through uh, through his eyes. And uh, it's really fun. I, I look at it every now and then on Christmas. I, I never want to read the whole thing. It's too too much of a slog for me, but I can just open it randomly and hit pages that just sing so so it's a matter of um you know writing style matters you
0: know? yeah
3: and it reminds me of that and takes me back to that because that's my favorite,
0: the, favorite. that reminds me just the, the plot it reminds me very much of uh, my favorite orwell novel which is coming up for air and where he's 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 got a character who's went through world war one and now World War Two is about to start, and he just wants to go home and and see his old church. And you know he's been living in London for so long, he wants to go back to the country and just come up for air for a second before the war starts. And where's and he from? He's 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 from um, rural England, some some small town in the middle okay. of England. But he's moved to to London to make money because he has oh, to. Okay. And he's kind of wandering around and trying to figure out his his, his past life and.
3: He needs to travel well. He can.
0: Yeah. 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 Wow. That's a. That's a really yeah, that's,
3: there's there's another thing that 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 just triggered off in my mind and that's my favorite movie ever and we've we've talked about it briefly before but the Le- year of living dangerously mm. peter weir's first film shown in this country and um it has this moment where this one woman who's ostensibly a cultural attaché for the British Embassy in Jakarta has gotten wind that there's an arms shipment inbound, which is going to arm the uh, dissidents who are going to rise up and the government's letting it happen because they know they can put them down hard. And this is a chance to install a coup, a, a military coup that's, that's right wing and replace the moderate government. And she's wandering through the marketplace in this one scene and just seeing the people and seeing the stalls and seeing the, the way of life and the way the people interact with one another. And she knows it's gonna end. And, and it's this moment where she just, she's, she knows it's coming. She can't tell anyone it's coming. And, and just is, is going through a, a, a slow burn as a result. And it's this beautiful scene. And your your description of of um, that book reminded me of that movie. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I
0: haven't seen that. I, didn't, I need to see that.
3: Oh, it's a wonderful thing. Mel Gibson's first
2: movie. It's amazing. It's an amazing you seen story. it story, yeah, I loved it. I saw it yeah. when I was in high school,
3: yeah, yeah, you, and you just it, I haven't seen it since though. we're seeing i'm not sure where you could see it. I used to be able to get the yeah. c d somewhere, I'm sure it's available somewhere, yeah,
2: yeah, just like when you watch a culture implode,
3: yeah, oh my gosh,
2: like having a front row seat to watching a culture implode, so.
3: Well, we're so fortunate that we've lived to 220 and you know, be able to watch our cultural implode. Yeah. Watching and your own culture implode part. is a
2: different experience. Yeah. The,
3: a, a leap into liminality.
2: Yeah, but hopefully this will make us a more compassionate
3: society. I'm <laughs>
1: sure someday there will be an Oscar-winning movie about right now and
3: it won't Absolutely. have been worth it. <laughs> It'll, it may have Mel Gibson starring.
2: there's a scary thought
3: (laughs) yeah Yeah.
0: he's back he's uh he was in like six films this year in starring roles uh,
1: that's because we clearly get angry about racism and make sure that people who act racist and say racist things suffer the consequences of it
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's clearly where we're at
0: (laughs) that's obviously the takeaway I think yeah uh, uh jeffrey what, what's your pick
4: <clears throat> uh i'm gonna go with a newer book it's called the ballad of black tom it's written by a gentleman named victor LeVale, i believe it could be like a french name that i'm gonna butcher so i apologize um if anyone's familiar with lovecraft country that's currently on tv right now that's yeah. also based off of a novel and this Uh, this in my opinion is just the better version it's much shorter it's a um it's kind of packaging is a retelling of hp lovecraft's famous story the horror at red hook but it's from the viewpoint of this black man um who's the main character and the the story is just so gripping and at moments like you were like i'm so filled with angst and worry for what's about to happen that it, it like just completely guides you along that rail of like what you expect with horror and the oh. thing that I can say that's most profound with this book is like the stakes are so high and I don't want to spoil anything for anybody but um, when compared to what we see in the tv show H- uh, Lovecraft Country I don't feel like it touches on the one thing that every good cosmic horror story has, and that's like the insanity or like the no coming back kind of element. Mm-hmm. Not to say that anything like that happens, but H.P. Lovecraft doesn't give his characters many outs, and there's something very realistic about that. So I don't mean to say, like, oh, you'll love this book for the verisimilitude because you won't, but if horror were to be real it feels like it would come this way and the promise that gets so i think every good piece of writing in the first page will essentially write a promise to the reader that we will fulfill at the end and you really get that here And like the genuine honesty of this person who is faced with the dissonance of, I love this person's work, H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft hates me by virtue of what I look like, who I am. So to to have such an emotionally raw subject matter um, be at the forefront of this tale makes it just so gripping and... You'll read it in one sitting it's that it's that you know concise and there are no filler words it is just raw
0: I love it <laughs> that's fantastic uh, yeah that's uh so it, it's a type of horror then it's um how would you describe the kind of horror it is it's not it's not Stephen King
4: no um Stephen King will touch into this type of horror at times, especially with some of the later books in the Dark Tower series. But I would call this cosmic horror, uh, meaning that there is this force outside of like the conceivable world, but also that force is like this progenitor or this creator, this, um, this thing that's bigger than life itself. And that's kind of the, the long and short of this genre of horror you know you're never going to defeat the bad guy you might outwit him maybe
0: okay okay let's go so the stakes are completely different than something like misery
4: right like there's no silver bullet stephen king always writes in a silver bullet it seems um lovecraft will not write the silver bullet meaning like the the, the one shot you got it and you will kill and preserve yourself the uh, self-preservation isn't the doesn't feel like the end goal. It feels like a metamorphosis has taken place
0: uh, from go. Okay, that's cool. Okay, so uh, you, you all have deep books. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my my late night reading. Uh, this is I, I was reading. Um dick francis because uh, because ken loaned me a whole bunch of dick francis novels and this is the reading that i do uh like you know it's kind of late at night and i've got a cocktail and i'm sitting there reading and it's 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 you know it's here comes another train
1: see there was no hint of the train it almost sounds like you summoned it
0: <laughs> I, I do summon them
1: like i don't know if that's cool enough to get you in the x-men but it's pretty badass <laughs>
0: some of the train some of the train noise uh, yeah. yeah so anyway um, it, it, it I, I finished my, my Dick Francis I've got to return all those books to you. Uh, no can. don't oh, thank you. You store them. okay. <laughs> and they're fr- fantastic. Uh, but I, I've, I've moved on to, I'm rereading the burglar novels by um, Lawrence block and I just absolutely love these novels. They're, they're, there's absolutely nothing important about them. It's just, it's a, like a very, very light, you've got a burglar, and he's going to go in, and he's going to steal, and he gets into trouble, and he's got to solve a mystery. It's almost a cozy, uh, except for he's he's dealing with a little bit higher stakes there. Um, But he's unafraid to to go back and do those sort of uh, Agatha Christie things that detective novels are no longer supposed to do. And so it's just really, really wonderful. Uh, Like, you don't get that kind of writing anymore, because... It goes against um, the modern sensibility of publishers as opposed to readers. right? I still like reading all those Agatha Christie novels. And I, I, I love um, Jeeves and Worcester, and I, mm. I don't know why the, those kinds of books are not encouraged anymore. Um, but it th- 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 certainly is. He, he had enough clout before going into this because he had written, you know, uh, the those books that I don't like as much, but they're, they're amazing books, um, about his cop, his... Um, Who's this alcoholic cop who's going through recovery? Um, anybody know? Uh, oh, he, It's A Million Ways to Die. Is, it was the first novel. Uh, and, and, and so I'm, I'm going to tell you the end, end of A Million Ways to Die. It's so, so beautiful. Uh, and and he's, he's been drinking his way through his whole novel. And he, he walks into an A8 meeting. And he says, my name is the name I can't remember. And I'm an alcoholic. And that's what launches this series. But anyway, that, that's what kind of got him. It's a brilliant book. But he, after he had that cloud, he could go and write the kind of books that he wanted to write. And so every once in a while, he'll do this.
1: You're not talking about the books that were written by. Are these the ones that were adapted by CBS, starring Tom Selleck?
0: No. No. Okay. No, that's that's another alcohol detective. But uh, he, he's kind of the first. That um, seems
1: to be a thing. Yeah. A trope, <laughs> almost.
0: Yep. But it it, it, it was, uh, I, I don't know that it, it's, it's certainly not the beginning of AA that right. he did. It's kind of, it was, well, I think Ken, you'll know better. Like he did this in the 60s, and I think this would have been kind of a rare thing to do in the 60s use yeah, AA, AA as a. It
3: would have been a little bit. Okay. Around the 80s, it started getting kind of hip. Okay. And then in 90s and, and into 2000 it became almost sacred. And then all of a sudden, it, it, nobody touches it anymore.
1: That's all right. Yeah. I remember I like Michael Keaton being in Clean and Sober uh-huh. after having a career as uh, you know a comedic actor. And it uh, seems like everyone was doing those movies for a
0: while there. Um, yeah, yeah, Melanie. Was it Melanie Groth? No, it wasn't her, it was the Harry Met uh, Solomon.
1: I avoided them because there were no uh, aliens. Or boobs so they'd have they held no interest to in me whatsoever but um, that's more Holy about shit. that's more about how I, I, old I was at the time that they were coming out but, uh, but I remember <laughs> uh, I do remember that being a thing though like everyone it seemed like every major star regardless of what genre they were famous for would have a dramatic departure for their clean and sober movie
0: hmm. um, that was yeah I remember movie. that well Anyway, this is not the burglar novels are not clean and sober books. Um, they're That's good. They, they, they are fantastic. They're just a, a whole lot of fun, and so you know I'm, I'm usually reading them a, as I fall to sleep right now, mm-hmm. and it's 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 just I don't know good clean fun I guess, um, and it, I, I tried to get Sean bookstore mm-hmm. Sean to, to read these because he he is a books he's a used bookstore seller by day, but there's no way you can make a living at that, so he's a burglar by night and. It's, Fantastic. So, okay, so that, that, that that's my pick. Um, okay, do we have any follow-up? Any end thoughts? Uh, I, I, I will just say
1: that I, I think that we should... One of the things that prompted this idea was that we were talking about the top... 10, like, you asked a bunch of us for 10 books that we recommended people to read for the... Yeah. Uh, uh, was the culture on my website i believe yeah yeah so um and i at the end of after giving you a list of 10 books that occurred to me i easily know 10 authors locally who have books that are fantastic and i think we ought to do uh another one of these uh we ought to come up with like you know one or two books to recommend for local authors here in southern california um like that I, I would be in the inland Empire area but i I mean i I'm, I'm not necessarily gonna limit myself to that um but uh yeah I think I think maybe we should do a, a part two of this next week I just want to put that out there
0: I like that very much yeah yeah um the, the long Beach authors I could name alone uh, would be yeah long list I uh
1: yeah one well I mean one of my favorite poets currently working is Donna Hilbert and she's uh, yeah She's Long Beach, so,
0: yeah. Fantastic.
1: Also, okay. she's just one of my favorite people. She's a, yeah. She's sweet. Yeah. Absolutely sweet.
0: Okay, well, um, thank you all for coming to the Inland Valley Arts and Literature Show. All right, I'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.